most people look at rock biographies as pretty disposable, pretty trashy, the, the bar is very low, and they're the kind of thing, you, you know, you browse and you chuck. That's Mark Mordew's pretty harsh assessment of the genre his new book challenges. More from him in a moment. Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Okay, here's a confession. I'm not a Nick Cave fan. I know that's sacrilege to some, but I'm telling you that because it's hard to read a biography of someone whose life and work you're not a fan of. Mostly we read biographies of people we admire, or, if not, because we want to know more about people who've played a decisive role in history or current events. So for this episode of Life Sentences, it took a special effort to read Boy on Fire, Mark Mordew's biography of Nick Cave. But I'm so glad I overcame my prejudice, because it's a really rewarding read, a social history as much as the portrait of one creative individual. Mark is a poet and journalist with a strong sense of social justice, who's been around the music scene forever, so he writes as an insider. His previous books include a travel memoir called Dastgar, Diary of a Head Trip. He's the winner of the 2010 Pascal Award for Critic of the Year and the 2014 Peter Blasey Fellowship. He lives in Sydney. I knew that writing this biography had pushed Mark close to the edge and thought we should tackle that up front. I want to start by, in a way, getting to know you a little bit in terms of the journey that you've been on with this book, because you're a poet, you've been a rock critic uh, and journalist, and so you've been kind of very steeped in the world that you write about in this book. But I'm just wondering whether you can give us a kind of overall sense of the trajectory of the narrative arc of Mark Mordew writes this book. Oh, wow. Okay. I... Started my career as a young rock journalist in Sydney, coming from Newcastle. Then I'd sort of diversified over a whole lot of areas of the arts and travel and really whatever I felt like. I'd, I'd been kind of heavily inspired by people like Truman Capote when I was younger. And I always had a feeling that journalism had the potential at its best to be an art form and as much like a poem or a short story uh, or any other kind of literary or creative form, that it could rise to that level emotionally and aesthetically. And along the way, I edited a couple of uh, sort of national publications. And basically, when uh, the idea of doing a biography of Nick Cave came up, which was suggested to me by another writer, Jack Marks, I immediately dismissed it and said, no, I'm not going to subsume my life under someone else's life. And then I thought about it for a few days and thought about all the people I'd met over the course of my career whether it was collaborators of, of Nick Cave's like Mick Harvey or a filmmaker like Vim Vendors or, or all kinds of figures across the arts because that's the journalism I'd mainly specialised in and including Nick Cave himself who I'd met and interviewed a number of times and seen many times, uh, I realised, wow, I, I really do know everybody. I should seriously consider this. So I developed a, an outline for the book and everything was great guns. There was a lot of excitement around it. People wanted a complete biography of Nick Cave, naturally enough, and that was my goal. But as I got deeper into it, it got harder and more difficult and more demanding. And basically, about sort of four years into the project, I began to really sort of collapse and struggle and I was going, inching forward rather than moving by yards. And 
there were a lot of rabbit holes, really, because the nature of Nick's work is it's, it's so kind of deeply cross-referenced across his own career, like songs refer to other songs, but also to other artworks, to poetry, to writers, to, to people he knows. So you, 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 get, you get sort of immersed in this sort of web that just seems to, 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 to go on endlessly. So I really kind of reached a point where I was kind of starting to have a, a, a breakdown over it because I couldn't, I couldn't, the problem is I couldn't not only progress to the level that the publishers wanted, which was a complete biography. I, I just, you know, if I worked on the biography, I wasn't making money anymore because I'd spent my advance. Uh, if I was going away teaching and freelancing, then I wasn't working on the biography. So no matter what I was doing, I was feeling that in my life I was a bit of a failure and I was uh, just not making any money. So y- your life gets in the ro- road of the life that you're writing about. I mean, that's the sort of irony of, of big biographies. It's, your life is the problem, not necessarily the life that you're trying to explore, although definitely I was taking on a big animal when I, when I was to do something about Nick. So I proposed back then a solution, which was to do a portrait of the artist as a young man, and that was pretty much rejected. There was a feeling that there wasn't enough interest for that type of uh, solution. And in the meanwhile, then I just went through a relationship breakup and just really kind of was the man who fell to earth, you know, like I was unemployed. I was, I kind of, I guess I did have the breakdown that I'm sort of alluding to and I just went through a couple of lost years of sort of drinking and moving from place to place and unemployment and all these kind of things. But I, I had kids, so I, I kind of had to fight my way back out of that hole. I couldn't indulge myself in that. And just steadily, you know, but very slowly, things got better for me personally. And then I started editing a neighbourhood paper, and that was followed by um, working at Addison Road Community Organisation and having reliable work, meaningful work, and living nearer my kids again and just kind of that gave me the energy and the strength to to reapproach the book again and in the meanwhile an, an alternative publisher was interested in the work I'd done and felt that it had great value and great potential and liked the idea of a portrait of the artist as a young man in terms of Nick Cave and basically I, I found the right publisher the right editors people that were sympathetic to what I wanted to do people that understood me and I was match fit again to take the project on. And so there was a big, long, twisted curve along the way to, to, to get to where I had to go. And I, I've looked at the book and I think really I needed to sort of fix myself up in order to, to, to do what I did. And so would it be right to say that overall this is a piece of work that took you 10 years? Yeah, 10 years, but maybe more like five years of actual research and writing and five years in a kind of personal sort of meandering place from sort of wilderness to just reasserting my career in other ways. I mean, I I published a a poetry book called Darlinghurst Funeral Rites. I did a hell of a lot of freelancing. So it wasn't as if I was doing nothing, but a, a book is running a marathon, you know, and like many journalists and poets and the like, you're essentially a kind of a sprinter and it's a very different kind of ball game to hold that massive kind of project and, and give it a kind of shape and give it a dynamism as well, you know, to, for it to have a sort of energy that's going to keep people rolling through it and, and stay involved with the information that you're wanting to impart. 
Was there any sense that you had any kind of ambivalence about the genre of the rock biography? I mean, do you think rock biographies have been particularly good to date? Or do you look at them all and think, well, most of them are hagiographies? Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't look at rock biographies and think they've been particularly good to date. I look at rock biographies and think they've been particularly bad. Um, There's a few standouts. Uh, Nick Tosh is one of Jerry Lee Lewis is a notable one, Hellfire. Um, The Peter Growlnick two-part biography of Elvis Presley is really impressive for its research and and restraint, which is kind of the opposite to Tosh's, who comes out of a more new, new journalistic background and his sort of approach is a kind of fable or fantasy at times in its energy. There's a really great uh, biography more of the city of New York uh, and its music scene in the 70s called Love Goes to Buildings on Fire by Will Herms. There, there, are, there are a few there that are really outstanding but they're really rare and I mean you, you have to be sort of honest and admit that most people look at rock biographies as pretty disposable pretty trashy the the bar is very low and they're the kind of thing you browse and you chuck yeah so you know obviously i wanted to do something different to that i I want it to be to be a biography of a major artist in a bigger sense and my hope from the very beginning was that it would be the kind of thing you'd put on your bookshelf but beside a biography of of like brett whiteley and patrick white so these iconic australian figures but not just because of those names, but because of the writing and the thoroughness of the research and the historical importance of them as well and the fact that they demand and require and should get really um, critical and aesthetic attention that matters. But unfortunately, I think with rock and roll, because it's more of a, a lowbrow form, the art of reflection around it is treated in a pretty offhand way. So is the solution to that to broaden the sphere of the book so that you're not just dwelling on, you know, the influences or the ideas on a single individual, but you are, in fact, doing something much more ambitious. You are writing a kind of social biography where you're providing an enormous amount of context for Mm. this individual. Well, that was my solution. <laughs> there's a, a really, uh, I've forgotten his name, but there's an American writer who's quite famous who's been doing like a, a seven-volume thing on Lyndon Johnson. That's Robert a, Caro. Uh, Robert Caro, that's it, yeah. So, And it's, it's, as, it's as much a portrait of America through the sort of 50s, 60s and on, you know, and that was kind of the vision I, I've had for the Nick Cave biography from the very beginning, that it be social and historical and that it be a picture of growing up that it be about how an artist is formed that it be particularly a sort of picture of of australia in the 60s and 70s and a close-up on you know a country town like wangaratta on the post-punk scene in melbourne on the, the the way culture was mediated at that that point in time in ways that that is no longer the case so people had a sense of how culture was sort of shaping itself so for sure, like it's about Nick Cave, but it's about much more than that. I think Nick, though, is, is a very rich and complex artist and he, he, he certainly can handle close attention. But in doing a portrait of the artist as a young man, a lot of the art is really immature, but the influences resonate on through his entire career. There was also a kind of need to sort of paint that broader picture as well. 
And it, it seemed sort of significant to me because Nick himself refers so much to his to his childhood and adolescence in his songs one way or another or, or a dream of those spaces. And, and that's maybe something that happens to older people as well. You, you look at yourself and the puzzle of who you are and who you might still be and you, you go back to your childhood and teenage years both to sort of understand yourself and explain yourself to yourself and to other people but also to find new inspiration. There's a kind of dreaming sensibility within your youth that is still the fuel of what you are. Absolutely. And I think that really comes through in the book and particularly the attention and the time and the detail that you devote to his parents and his wider family. For me, that's where the real richness and pleasure of the book lies. But I guess the $64,000 question with someone who's alive as a subject is that tension between authorised and unauthorised. So often you'll hear someone say that their subject cooperated with them at the beginning and then they didn't like the result and everything goes sour. So can you just talk a little bit about that aspect of embarking on this? Well, actually, Nick initially just said no. He didn't want a bar of it. And then he's changed his mind, I, th- I think because of a- an article I- I'd written that he'd read. And I ended up spending quite a lot of time with Nick over an- a number of years and had many, many conversations, formal and informal, and got to know him quite well. He was very generous. I wouldn't have had the access to his mother and to the rest of his family and to childhood friends and to the sort of Melbourne scene. If, if Nick hadn't have first sort of okayed it and let people know it was cool to speak with me. But then, as I explained earlier, like I was just taking forever to write it. It was dragging on and dragging on. And when everything sort of collapsed, Nick was actually really great. He was more concerned for my well-being, uh, which sounds a bit corny, but he was really... Uh, I mean, this is the thing about biography is you, you get into this weird space of intimacy that I think is like a working friendship. I think that's how it is. So w- whether you, you're working at McDonald's with someone for five years or, or whether you're working on a major film, it's the same sort of thing. You're side by side with someone. You get to know them very well. Everything else falls away. Like there is a sort of intimacy, but the in- intimacy for the most part is only going to last as long as the project lasts and you need to accept that. But I, I would see with Nick, because he's such a charismatic individual, people seek to sort of attach themselves to him. And, of course, biography requires a, a degree of distance and separation because there are elements of where you're aware of... You may not be going to betray a person, but there's going to be a harshness of judgment. Like, your obligation ultimately is to the storytelling and to a kind of truth without that truth being uh, maliciously intended. So there's, there's a, a real line or edge that one has to walk and that can make your personal relations complicated or a bit, a bit strange or seesaw It's It's weird. But anyway, basically what happened is Nick's son, Arthur, died in terrible circumstances. And about a year after that, Nick said to me that he'd rather I not proceed. He, he was concerned to protect his family, these kind of things, which is totally understandable and I totally get. But that was precisely when the project was beginning to get its wheels back on again and I had to sort of tell him no. And there was some unhappiness about that and a kind of low-level sort of friction uh, between us. 
because I had an obligation to my life and to my family and to, to contracts I'd signed, thousands of dollars that I was in, in debt for, uh, and to the, all the people I'd spoken to. I, I lost, I think in Boy on Fire, there are at least 20 main characters. It's sort of Dostoevsky and in its composition of voices who, you know, without wanting to sound too pretentious, was definitely a kind of influence on that desire to have a symphonic structure that where people memorize everybody so nick and i kind of uh argued and parted ways and uh i kind of pushed to the end and nick sort of cooled out a bit and was uh, less annoyed about the fact i was proceeding and we kind of got to a point that was more neutral where he didn't want to see the book um, but he was—he gave me permission to reprint uh, some lyrics, which is an indication of sort of tolerance that that things were going ahead. And um, and now since the book's come out, I obviously sent him a copy anyway, uh, and he got in contact with me only about a week or so ago, really, and let me know that he really loved it, and that uh, he was even kind of moved by by parts of it, and. Um, Nick was Nick told me he was surprised. He was expecting the usual bout of Aussie malice. So I think Nick was expecting a more kind of scabrous and assaultative kind of pathography rather than biography of, of him because uh, he, he is a polarising kind of artist. But I never wrote the book for Nick. It was never going to be for him. You know, I've, I've said this before too, but I was never... Uh, Nick's servant and I was never Nick's assassin for me it was really about trying to kind of stand in this tense middle ground place where I could be as true as I could and where the emphasis always had to be on the the best possible writing with the greatest amount of compacted detail and even a kind of conflicting detail where you have two or three people giving different versions of events or personalities and there's no resolution to that. So the, the storytelling stays alive. It's as if the event, the moment in the past is still happening right now because those people are still kind of arguing through their visions about what that reality was, which is really the truth of any memory. Exactly. And I think, you know, I'm trying to imagine my reaction if this happened to me. But, I mean, I can't see how Nick could not fail to be flattered by the meticulousness of the research and the thoroughness of the detail and precisely that thing that you've just mentioned, which is going to get one, two or three other voices to corroborate an anecdote or to um, to offer a counterpoint to an anecdote. I mean, the trouble that you've taken with detail is extraordinary and forensic and really very rich. And and to me, that is like you have paid a great compliment to Nick with the seriousness of the approach of this book. Just out of curiosity, I was reading the other day the Adam Sisman biography of John le Carre, which I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a huge right. doorstop right. of a book. Right. It's about 600 pages. And I think he says in the introduction to the book that he spent 
50 hours talking to Le Carre. And he had the similar sort of relationship and tension dynamics that you've talked about, where, you know, Le Carre cooperated and then he didn't like it and then he withdrew some cooperation. And, you know, there was a lot of that kind of thing going on, as you would imagine with someone as complex as Le Carre. Do you know how many hours you actually recorded of conversation with Nick? And did you do it in all sorts of places? Like, did you take an opportunity sometimes if you were in a car together? Or did you sit down for sort of formal conversations a bit like we are now? Yeah, there was a whole lot of different situations. There was the initial contact with Nick, which was basically three sort of full days of conversing at his home in Brighton. Uh, Initially, I'd been told there would only be three hours, which seemed ridiculous, but I just accepted that. And really, uh, essentially, Nick obviously just wanted to meet me, get to know me and, and see if I was worth trusting more for more time than that. And then once I sort of passed that sort of test, all the sort of doors opened. We talked a lot on the phone. Uh, I went on tour with Grinderman around Australia for a, a, a big day out in... God, I can't even remember the year, I should. But uh, in any case, and... Yes, we Nick and I did a number of kind of car trips. Two of them are actually major features in in Boy on Fire itself. Um, and also Nick would just call me randomly for conversations because we did become quite friendly. That's that's why I was remarking on it before. You you're, you're someone's biographer, but you just end up kind of you know crapping on with them and talking. And and when I was down here living in Thoreau. And I'd been through the relationship bust up and I was sort of pretty loose and I was sort of drinking and it was, you know, Nick would call me up at like, I mean, he's in the UK, he would call me up at like midnight or whatever and and we'd talk for an hour. But as I say, like, I mean, I wasn't expecting the call, there'd be no formal arrangement. He would often call me just randomly and maybe because he was just a bit bored or lonely, I just felt, you know, he might say, how's that fucking book going towards you? But usually we'd just talk about all kinds of stuff. And he, he like, I'd I'd tell him that. I've said, oh, sorry, I've been having a few wines here, Nick. And, uh, and I'd be scrambling to find bits of scrap paper because I'd realise I'd better write some of this down because I'm smashed and it's midnight. And, and But sometimes I couldn't even find paper. So, you know, like... Many conversations, formal, informal, random. Often the precious stuff seems to kind of come not out of formal interviews but just through being in someone's company while things are kind of occurring. So what's the ethics of that, Mark, when you're having those random late-night conversations which he's initiated? So he's just ringing you up for a bit of a yarn. Do you, if you can find the scrap of paper and if you can get your act together, do you say, do you mind if I use this and write it down or what's going on there? No, I just write it all down as best as best I can. I told Nick right from the start a number of times that any time I'm on the room, I'm on. You know, I made that very clear to him. What do you mean by on the room? Well, as in on, as in working. So as, as soon as I enter the room, uh, and I jokingly said, in actual fact, as soon as I enter England, I'm working. I, I made that clear to him on a number of occasions. So in a sense that there is no casual moment. I mean, it's a cinema verite sort of perspective, really, where you're you're trying to always be there grabbing the moments. But even though you say that, of course people forget. And, and, and this is part of the ethical 
blurring of the lines, and but also part of the blurring that you need. In, you you want them also to forget your presence to some extent. Um, so it's a it's a bit of it's definitely a, a grey zone. And under normal circumstances, the for me, as I understood the project at the time, I was working like that. I would have taken the whole thing and shown Nick, so he had a chance to reply, respond, reject, etc. But I also Nick and I only ever had a handshake agreement, and the agreement was, I would show him the book, and I told him that I was not promising to change a single word. Uh, no matter what he said, but obviously I'd respect what he had to say. Um, counter to that, Nick always had the power and the ability to uh, refuse use of lyrics, copyright, to uh, refuse use of email, because as an email itself is a, uh, in the possession of the author or the writer, so there are many areas where Nick could have made things very messy for me, and he's also a very rich and powerful person. So I guess if, if he'd wanted to, he could use lawyers and the like as well. So it's it's a bit like that sort of idea of mutually assured destruction. There's this if if there's a degree of trust and respect there, then hopefully you're going to come to a kind of pragmatic and quality solution. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm lucky Nick's a writer because I think. There were things in the book that I felt that Nick might... Well, I was sure that he would not like. So I was very appreciative of him writing to me to let me know that he had liked the book. And it's kind of big of him, really, to sort of ignore those thorns and to sort of see the book on a larger level. But I think because Nick is a writer, he can see the 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 bigger nature of the the project and appreciate that value. You're listening to Life Sentences, a podcast about contemporary biography. I always love looking at acknowledgements because they provide you with such great clues to someone's process and what they're feeling, you know, maybe a bit insecure about. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were very lucky in that everybody, it seems to me, was happy to talk to you. And, you know, the real gem for me of the book is Dawn, Nick's mother, who is absolutely a fantastic character. Um, I noticed that the one person who said that they didn't want to be involved was his brother, Peter. Do you understand why? Not really. I mean, the Cave family are all kind of big characters. Like Nick's father, Colin, was a, a huge figure to the point of dominating, I think. In, in Nick's early life, he died sort of tragically in a car accident at age 21, which is a, a major influence on the directions Nick's life took and was kind of one of the big wounds in his life up until the moment he lost his son. Um, uh, Dawn, obviously, who you've mentioned, is an in- incredible character. I, I never met Colin, but I think, you know, it's a bit simplistic and, and general, but I think Colin gave Nick's father, gave Nick his his drive and performing energy. And I think from Dawn, Nick inherited a sort of tenderness and humour. Um, and Dawn was a very sort of artistic and, uh, you know, you could sit down with her and talk about Yates or WH Auden or whatever, you know, but she had a very kind of, a very very loving and proud but very wry sense of her son. I mean, I mentioned it in the book where Nick's complaining about something in the media and Dawn says to him, well, Nick, you do like to exaggerate when you tell your stories. So, and Julie and Tim, Nick's brother and sister, they're they're very strong 
creative, intelligent characters as well. And I think Peter, not having met him, uh, is just a quieter guy. Someone's got to make room for all these big figures. So, yeah, I just, you know, I mean, he's just a bit more private. That's okay. I had more than enough family kind of contacts to do. There was also Anita Lane, Nick's first really important muse and big love I mean Anita Lane co-wrote songs with Nick like uh, Dead Joe and um, she wrote Stranger Than Kindness later on with Blixer Bar Girl which many people think is one of the best songs Nick Cave and the Bad Seas ever did she styled Nick as a young man she made his clothes pretty outrageous wild clothes too like a, a shirt that had all these sort of sleeping tablets sort of sewn into it with using plastic and things. So um, she did set design for their first film clip, These Boots Are Made For Walking. She painted a really great portrait of Nick that's um, in the Stranger Than Kindness exhibition of, of his life. Um, and she influenced him artistically, lyrically, all kinds of levels. Um, and I contacted her many times over the years and becomes a fine line too where you want someone to talk to you but you don't want to harass them and so you know i would periodically i tried through mutual friends of myself and anita lane because i, I did make a lot of friends through the book i tried through nick himself uh, i tried directly through email and alike and i just didn't really get anywhere and eventually i just let it go because i felt that i was intruding so I hope I've sort of honoured her influence on Nick and at the same time done as good a job I can of, of being truthful about the, the nature of the relationship on, on many levels. So in that case, I'm obviously dependent on other voices, you know, on Nick himself talking about Anita Lane and on other people talking about her because she's almost a mythical figure in her own right. Yeah, and, and she, you do give her prominence, which obviously she deserves. And, you know, just hearing you talk about it now, you realise what a kind of sensitive dance this is. And I guess the other kind of very sensitive part of this whole endeavour is the extent to which you feel that you can offer psychological insight and analysis as to the sort of interior life of an artist. So, you know, at one stage, you put the questions to Nick rhetorically. Um, have you forgiven your father, Nick, you ask? Yeah. And have you forgiven yourself? This is when you're talking about uh, Colin Cave's tragic early death. Mm. And I'm just wondering, how did you develop the confidence to be able to make a sort of psychological speculation about what might be going on in Nick's mind? Well, I guess a very simplistic answer would be from talking to him so much and from talking to so many other people. So there's a sort of informational and, and detail accruing of not certainty, but, but certainly enough information to give you confidence I mean, you don't necessarily put everything into a biography. There are things that you leave out for for reasons. I think one of the problems when you're dealing with a person who's famous is not so much concern for them because they, they to some extent, are used to the public focus and there is a lot of public information out there. But the sort of collateral damage on people that aren't famous 
that are kind of sucked into the vortex of that light. And so you're focusing on Nick and his world, but, but through that focus you can hurt other people. Like that, I could hurt, for instance, Nick's mother, Dawn. I could hurt uh, Anita Lane. I could hurt uh, friends of, of Nick's from his boyhood or his formative years in Melbourne simply by giving them attention. But, of course, a lot of those people feel left out of the story, so they're hurt if they don't get attention either. Um, so that's a, a whole other complicated kind of area as well. And you're trying to to give people a, a part in the story that respects them with sometimes not much more than the flick of a pen, and that can sort of be a little bit limiting too. But in regard to that moment in the book where I asked Nick that question... That was almost like a, a moment of seizure, like a kind of inspiration that came to me, and I thought, "Gee, can I, can I, can I do that? Should I do that?" But there was something about the the power of it to ask rhetorical questions to Nick in the context of the book, and there are a number of places that I began to get interested in writing the biography where I wanted to break the biographical frame so that the work didn't simply lay on the page, but that voices were leaving the page. So at that point in time, my voice leaves the page, and it's as if I'm turning to Nick and speaking to him. There's a, a kind of message from a girlfriend in Wangaratta that was very important to Nick who introduced him to Leonard Cohen, where she's, she basically asked me to tell Nick to say that she's been out in Central Australia teaching Aboriginal kids and she wants to let him know that she's happy. Uh, and there are a few little messages here and there like that, that that the voices are reaching from the past or from, in my case, from my narrative and kind of addressing Nick. So these people are not simply uh, creatures caught in aspic. They are still speaking, and it's as if their voices are still on the wind in some way, uh, you know, through, and, and they are still there sort of conversing with Nick in, in certain ways. So I wanted some of that energy to sort of lift off the page so the book wasn't kind of encased and, and, and shut down. But th- th- that rhetorical question was a, a pretty important one. And, and and partly a desire for drama as well, to make people uh, wake up, to make people think about the, the details that have been suggested to them and to think about the significance of Colin Cave's death in Nick's life. Nick has spoken a lot about, about the death of his father you know, and, and how um, significant it was to him. Um, I mean, one of the good things about the book for me was being able to also highlight Dawn's influence as a counterbalance to that because people in a lot of respects know that the death of Nick's father was very wounding, but they they don't kind of understand that that wound really in many ways comes through the prism of the pain that it caused Nick's mother and Nick's love for his mother and the fact that Nick came has come here every year, I think for what, 40 years every year at Christmas New Year time but basically every year to be with his mother on the anniversary of his father's death right so that is how important Nick's mother is to Nick not just the death of of Nick's father so they're they're, they're keyed in together
Wow, yes, that's that's very powerful. And um, knowing that, which I, I didn't realize. Um, you mentioned fame there and the impact that fame and being in the orbit of fame can have on all the people who are sort of the satellites to the main kind of planet, if you like. And I'm just wondering whether you worry about the sort of revisionism that comes with fame in that people are then able, with the benefit of hindsight, now that they know that this person that they knew as a kid at school is a sort of global superstar, does that alter the way they perceive things? I mean, how much do you trust? people's memories given the fact that i think that fame does have this warping factor yeah for sure well i guess like any situation with with trust there are certain people you trust more than others but ultimately it doesn't have to be your solitary judgment that that this version of the truth is the only version that's why i was interested in the idea of competing voices um, and you can kind of let the, the 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 kaleidoscope of views exist without a need to sort of refute the contradictions because the contradictions are where the strength lies. So that was sort of one area that allowed me to kind of maybe transcend that sort of rewriting of, of history. I think pretty clearly Nick has sort of been... Uh, revisioning his his past through the Red Hand files and in in the wake of his son's death. So that's why I was concerned a little that there might be things in the book that upset or or angered him, but he's been able to see well beyond that to something larger about about Boy on Fire. Um, I think part of the problem with fame isn't so much that people get a different version of of reality it's that a world in which they were equals is no longer the case so people look at the boys next door as nick's first band but at the time the boys next door were a hot young band they became the birthday party who were a kind of global um, subcultural phenomenon and remain so they were seen as uh, equals. They were very strong characters. There was Roland S. Howard, who's been enjoying kind of mythical renaissance in his own right. There was Mick Harvey, who's probably one of the great collaborators in rock and roll. And everything he's, whenever he seems to work with another artist, they seem to make their best work. I mean, Mick Harvey's not only worked with Nick Cave, but PJ Harvey as well on what I think are her best albums. There was Tracy Pugh, who was an incredible bass player and a a very kind of complex sort of juvenile delinquent genius whatever but his sound virtually has defined that kind of swampy melbourne rock and roll sound that that continues to be the sort of definitive kind of heartbeat of of what comes out of melbourne and then you had a drummer like phil calvert who was a, a basically a very sweet guy and a very intelligent one who was co-managing the the band with Mick Harvey, and you know was influenced by people like James Brown and jazz, and brought a whole lot of sophistication and and musical complexity to what would have been a fairly straight ahead pop rock band otherwise. So they were, they were all 
they're all very strong individuals. And then all the people around them who went on to influence fashion and film and um, all kinds of art forms. So there's this whole explosion of talent. And then all of a sudden everybody's sort of talking about it as if it's Nick Cave's world. But they didn't look at it as Nick Cave's world then. He was a star. He was even then a star. He was certainly someone people noticed. But he was amongst a whole kind of atmosphere of talent and there's a kind of tragedy in that too because you just sort of see the other figures who who had promise that kind of completely fell away, that are sort of still tethered to Nick's kind of magical story and are to some extent mystified as to why Nick's story has been so magical and their story has sort of ceased to move beyond that point in time. I think there's a sort of preconception, isn't there, that to be this kind of figure who has this sort of influence and staying power, you have to have grown up in one of the world's great cultural cities like London or New York. And I think one of the things I love most about the Mm. book is the way you devote quite a lot of time to his childhood and to this place, Warwick Nabeel. And so I was just wondering whether you could talk a little bit about his origins and about the way you've imbued the book with this sense of place which takes us from where he was born to the sort of cultural melting pot of St Kilda as this Mm. really vibrant kind of laboratory um, that he thrived in. I mean I think place has always been really important to to Nick and it really gets going in in Wangaratta which is where Nick did most of his growing up as a kid. Wangaratta's prime Ned Kelly territory. So that whole sort of mythic sort of tale is sort of hovering in the landscape and and alive in the landscape as a kind of ghost story, a sort of outlaw ghost story that sort of fits in well with where Nick ended up going. Um, Nick's father, Colin Cave, held a symposium in Wangaratta in 1967 it was attended by Manning Clark, the great Australian narrative historian. Um, and Wangaratta itself was a, you know, obviously a, a kind of rough but also beautiful country town that, that Nick as a boy grew up in. So he had a lot of freedom, a lot of time to sort of explore, a lot of time to do things like jump off the railway bridge into the river. And you hear all those references sort of emerging imagistically later on in Nick's songs. So that that place, both the actuality of the place and the remembering of the place in Nick and how that translates into his songs, I think gave Nick a sort of dreaming strength, you know, and then he has to leave town because he's becoming more delinquent as he gets to age 12, 13, and a much more, he's a very, very, very bright kid in a country town and and his parents basically send him off to Melbourne. But I think the essence of Nick is still in that, that Wangaratta place, the, the this sort of sweet, tough, brilliant, dreaming country boy, you know. So he has he carries the landscape within him and maybe it sounds a bit much, but I think it there's something about the Australian landscape and a kind of darkness within the brutal light, this, this sort of the Aboriginal connections to it. The, there's something about the landscape itself 
that goes into people. And I, I think as Nick gets older, he feels more and more that he's an Australian artist and it's become more and more significant to him. And all of that goes back to Wayne Garatta and all his boyhood experiences, you know, the river, the smells, being barefoot in the town, um, going up into the mountain ranges where Ned Kelly hid out and, you know, shooting rabbits that are sort of half out of it from myxomatosis and real rural kind of stuff. And I think that makes Nick quite uh, strong, quite really strong, because I think it gives him a sort of centre that maybe people who come from the city don't have, because in the city you have this constant dialogue of, is there such a thing as an Australian culture, and what is Australia, and and they're very kind of abstract mental conversations, and the, the answer to that really I think is to be found in, in a sort of physical journeying into the landscape, and if you haven't experienced the landscape one way or another in a deep way, be it the outback or be it the, the, the coast, then without the landscape you're kind of unmoored from your identity as an Australian. This is the problem for people who are purely urban. But Nick obviously came into Melbourne, then totally, like any rural boy would, particularly a very intelligent and artistically raised one, just ate up everything coming his way, ate it up, you know, he went to art school as well. You know, he wanted he wanted to be Brett Whiteley. That was really his model. That was that was who he wanted to be. And he was kicked out. You know, he bombed out. He did did terrible, and he was devastated by that. You know, and I, I think it's still something that kind of bothers him a little. You know, so he's he's eating up all the Brett Whiteley sort of influences and and that kind of mythos as well. And then he's looking at a heap of other painters as well. You know, whether. Um, it's Goya or, or different sort of religious painters or English painter like Francis Bacon, you know, and you, and you can kind of see that visual beauty and terror converging in Nick's musical identity and, and how that formed his, his image of himself and his performing kind of consciousness at, at a later sort of state. Uh, and then, of course, all the musical influences, everything from Roxy Music to... Alice Cooper to the Ramones to television uh, to Perubu, just this incredible rush. And that was part of the time as well as the place. But in Australia, we were kind of three months behind everything. Everything was slow. It's not like the internet and things now. You, you were literally waiting for everything to arrive by boat. Uh, so I went to Wangaratta. I actually drove the, the road that Nick's father had his car accident on and died on right to where it uh, occurred as best as I could locate it. And more by coincidence than design, it was at a similar time of year within a matter of weeks and a similar time of day and similar weather. Uh, so luck sort of played a hand, which meant I was able to write about that accident with a sort of visible and emotional strength. Uh, as well as sort of having studied the coronial report and things like this as well and spoken to many people like Dawn Cave and Nick himself. I spent a lot of time in St Kilda, a lot of time wandering around. Of course the places change, particularly urban places, but it's amazing how much is sustained there. And then you sort of look to other resources like books and film, video, these kind of things, um, 
to try and get a better sense of the actuality of things as they were then. So, yeah, there's a, 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 a definitely, I think, that thoroughness is important because you, you, you get a sort of vindicating texture having been in a place you can sort of see yourself into the narrative. So you have quotes, you have your research, you have details, but you can kind of give it a sort of cinematic texture that that allows you to take the eye of the reader and, more importantly, your eye expressively up into the the street or the, the landscape or... You know, I went down to the river where Nick used to swim as a kid under the viaducts. Well, you know, I walked up to the railway track that he used to jump off. It's a feeling that it's really gives something extra. Mark, this book has taken a lot of your life. A decade is a lot to give to a book. And you've obviously got the material for the second volume, which I know everyone is asking you about. But mm. I want to know, do you think you've got the stamina to do it? Do you, do you want to do it? Are you already feeling a kind of pull to tell the next part of the story? Yeah, I've got – yeah, well, I've, I've got – I just had a ton of material. This is the, the terrible problem that I had too much. I have enough to do London, Berlin, Sao Paulo, uh, which is really the full-blown inferno and I'd like to do it, but that's a really good question. Do I have the stamina? I've got the material. I feel a kind of obligation to all those people that gave me so much to to bring their stories up next, and I've been really gladdened by the response I've got to the book. Like, I've been overwhelmed, actually, gladdened to a week where, like, people have message me to tell me how much they love it and how uh, gripped they've been by it and how they devoured reading it and I mean I'm kind of in disbelief really about it so I have been thinking just lately about can I venture into volume two and um, I guess it depends on the publishers giving me enough money to be able to focus because I wouldn't want to do it unless I was just really dedicating myself to it having seen what this part of the project first time out did to me but there's there's something else that I feel I want to talk about in discussing whether I would do a volume two part of the pleasure of, of Boy on Fire for me and the amazement at people's responses to it and how passionately they seem to like it which is kind of even beyond my own dreams of, of what I would have hoped for is there's this feeling that the book is better than me. Uh, I think that comes out of non-fiction as an art form because you're not just the architect alone of the project because you're getting the insights of all these other people, you're using their voices, their intelligence, their perceptions, you're doing all the research, you're interviewing people, yes, but you're... You, it's it's a sort of a like a team project or something. There's this whole constellation of creativity and intelligence coming from a a community of, of of people, even a community in conflict. And so you're assembling all of this, and and it is better than you because it, it's it's uh, it's all these other people's insights and energies. You know, I wouldn't say it's better than you. It's bigger than you. Yeah. I think is is what that really means. Mm. Um, 
I want to ask you one final thing, and it's actually about the last word in the book. The last word in the book is the word tenderness, mm. which is your feeling mm. about Nick. Can you just tell me about your decision to end the book on that word? Well, initially my title for the larger overarching project of doing a full-life biography of Nick was Tender Prey, and that comes from a, an, an album Nick recorded at his most wild and, and damaged uh, that many think is one of his best. So that intrigued me. Bled and Butcher, who was, appears early in the book and is a good friend of Nick's as well as one of his best documenters in photography, mentioned to me that he, he felt at that stage in Nick's career, I think it's changed now in the wake of the death of Nick's son, but at that stage that people failed to recognise the tenderness in Nick's work and highlighted the darkness and the intensity and other factors, but that the tenderness was sort of not recognised or underplayed. So that stayed with me as a word, as a kind of bell being struck and I guess I was looking at it too in terms of myself and trying to write a biography that was firm and intense but didn't lose sight of some compassion for all the people that I was writing about including Nick so there's a kind of message to the self in that and I think too that in the narrative of Boy on Fire, you basically see a, a sweet, brilliant country boy get harder and, and darker. And then outside of the frame of that, you see that, that Nick has sort of restored himself to a more decent and uh, a more completely human place, uh, which was his life journey. So that restoration is really about not becoming this sort of cool, hard prince of darkness, like a kind of cruel Hamlet, but in fact kind of getting beyond that to sort of find a, a tenderness that, that is re redeemable, you know, for, for he, himself and for, for being able to love other people and care about them. Uh, and, of course, that relates to fatherhood and relates to his own kind of family narrative and, and his own boyhood as well to to sort of not lose the that sort of precious energy within which again is really just a message to myself as much as to nick mark mordew it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you thank you so much oh, thanks for having me caroline <laughs> with boy on fire mark mordew has really raised the bar on what a rock biography can be there's no breathless sycophancy here. Instead, there's a deep, meticulous care and commitment to capturing the essence of a wild spirit and his origins. I really hope that Mark does find the stamina to complete the project he embarked on all those years ago, and that now, having overcome his own demons, he can continue to explore Nick Cave's chameleon evolution. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. Thanks also to my producers, David Roach at Two Heads Media and Jennifer Macy. We are lucky to live and work on Darawal country of the Wadi Wadi people, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. <laughs> <laughs>